Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. I'm really excited because today's topic tree comes from the African continent, and I haven't gotten to spend a lot of time with truly African trees. So far out of 90 episodes, I've covered just the baobab and the sycamore fig. But in all fairness, Africa is far away and has very different cultures that emphasize more oral history as opposed to written history, which makes things hard to research. But if anything, learning about something so foreign only makes me want to travel more and see it for myself. And that's surely true with today's tree, the African marula. I first read about the marula seven months ago when I was researching the mango tree and its connections in the plant family Anacardiaceae. Since then, I've dug deeper into the biological and cultural roles this tree plays across the massive continent and have found some incredible stories. And while I've acknowledged how different these faraway cultures can be from my own, I was surprised to read human stories about this tree that I expected to see many other places before now and learn of ways to connect with this tree in my own backyard. Let's start things off with the plant family I mentioned in the intro, Anacardiaceae, the cashew family. I first introduced you to the cashew family back in May when I covered the mango tree, and now I'm about to cover my fifth member of this family in less than seven months. Let me tell you, I've just gotten a real kick out of how many times I've gotten to say the name Anacardiaceae recently. Rolls right off the tongue. So far, I've covered the mango tree, the Peruvian pepper tree, the cashew, and the pistachio. But you're also likely to recognize a few infamous non-tree family members, poison ivy, poison oak, and poison sumac. It's quite a diverse corner of the plant kingdom. The 860 species within it are divided into around 80 genera, which are more broadly divided into two subfamilies. The species I've covered so far have all belonged to one of the subfamilies, but today we'll be looking at the other one. The trees and other plants belonging to this other subfamily are primarily from Africa, with some from Asia, and only make up less than a quarter of the overall family. The fact that they're in the family at all is interesting to me, because it means Anacardiaceae has species from both the northern and southern hemispheres. When Pangaea, our ancient massive supercontinent that dinosaurs called home, started to split apart, it first broke into two smaller supercontinents. Laurentia, or Laurasia, was the northern landmass, and Gondwana was the southern. Since then, plants to the north and south of the equator have largely diverged in their evolutionary paths, which is why most of my topic trees are native to the northern hemisphere. Seeing as that is where I am from, they are simply more familiar, easier to understand, and thus easier to talk about. So I just think it's neat that this family includes plants in the northern and southern hemispheres. Getting back on track, our lovely marula belongs to a genus known scientifically as Sclerocaria. That name comes from the Greek language and ultimately translates to hard nut. Wait, really? This is apparently now the fifth nut tree I've covered in a row. I simply cannot escape them. Might as well just change the show's name to My Favorite Nuts if I don't start talking about something else. This species of nut is called Sclerocaria berea, 
There is one other species in this genus called Sclerocaria gelediae, but it's got a very small range exclusive to Kenya and is endangered. There's not a whole lot else to say about it. The species name of our marula, Berea, comes from one of the other common names for this tree, the beer, or beer nut. I tried to look more into this name because the difference in names sometimes yield different stories and tidbits, but searching for beer nut only led me to a type of cryptocurrency similar to Bitcoin called Nutcoin. I don't really care for crypto stuff, but maybe some of you are interested in diversifying your portfolio with a currency I've never heard of. I don't know. Meanwhile, the marula tree can be found growing throughout much of the savanna grasslands and open woodlands of Africa, pretty much anywhere south of the Sahara Desert, which is a massive area, and I'll explain in the second half just why this tree is so widespread, because it's arguably unnatural. For now, let's get you acquainted with what the marula looks like. The other African trees I've covered have had fairly distinct shapes. The baobab looks like it's upside down and swollen, and the sycamore fig has an incredibly wide crown spread. In comparison, the marula looks much more like a quote-unquote normal tree. It grows with a single trunk to heights of around 18 meters or 60 feet. The pinnately compound leaves are deciduous, but because they grow in the southern hemisphere, the seasons are switched from what I'm used to up north. So the canopy is usually full from October to Mayish, depending on the amount of rainfall the tree gets. As I get closer to winter, it's starting to get into the early days of summer for them. I've seen some compare the appearance of this tree to that of the acacia, especially since they tend to grow in the same area. Acacias are those iconic flat-topped trees that are often depicted as a single silhouette against a sunset in the Serengeti. That flat crown shape is certainly a difference, but may be harder to notice up close. An easier difference to pick out is that acacias are covered in thorns, whereas the marulas are not. In regards to reproduction, the marula is generally dioecious, meaning there are separate male and female trees. Male trees have flower structures that produce pollen, but don't grow fruits, while female trees have flowers that are fertilized by that pollen and subsequently do produce fruits. This is only generally the case. Mutations are prone to occur that cause female parts to grow on male flowers anyway, creating what are called bisexual flowers that have the ability to self-pollinate. Barring this variation, the primary method of fertilization is with the help of insects. The male flowers produce a sweet nectar, and the pollen it tries to release is sticky. So it has adaptations to attract bugs, honeybees especially love this, and make sure that they leave with the good stuff. As you would expect, flowering season is in the springtime, but because it's the southern hemisphere, that means from September to November. So right now, the flowering season should be about wrapped up, and the early stages of fruit production have begun. The marula fruit is a droop, or stone fruit, similar to cherries or peaches or plums. They're actually around the same size as a plum, too. With stone fruits, you have a stony pit that encases the seed, which is surrounded by edible flesh, which is all wrapped up in a skin layer. The biggest difference with marulas is that the skin is a bit thicker and more leathery than something like a peach or plum. The flesh is edible, but it has a way higher vitamin C content, so ultimately the taste is a bit more tart, kind of like a grapefruit. The pit that encases the seed is where we get comparisons to other nuts. 
After all, common nuts like almonds and pistachios are also droops. But the flesh is inedible to where we only care about the seed inside the hard shell that surrounds it. Therefore, the seeds of this tree are referred to as marula nuts. Cracking open a pit can reveal up to four of these seeds, depending on how successful pollination was. These seeds are very oily. You can apparently squeeze the oils right out just in your hand. Local wildlife cares more for the fleshy exterior, though, and that is largely how the seeds are dispersed. Monkeys and squirrels especially love these fruits, but have trouble breaking through the pit. They'll typically store the pits somewhere and wait for them to decompose and soften up until they can break them open for the oily seeds inside. But if they are successful in this, then it doesn't actually aid in plant reproduction since the seed is fully consumed. The most effective seed disperser in the wild, and the second most common method of seed dispersal overall, would have to be the elephant. Elephants are big boys who just gobble up these fruits whole, including the pit. The pit then decomposes in the elephant's body as it digests the fruit, and the germinated seeds are just pooped right out and ready to start sending roots down. There are some who claim that elephants love the marula fruit so much because it gets them drunk. If the fruit is left out for a while and starts to rot, the juices within will indeed ferment, and elephants do go after this fermented fruit. However, the extent at which those juices ferment, coupled with how big elephants are, make it biologically unlikely that they actually get drunk off of them. Also, elephants have been shown to prefer ripe fruits over the fermented ones, indicating that they don't seek out that theoretical intoxication. So if you see an elephant acting silly and you notice a bunch of marula fruits around, it's probably just because elephants are really silly animals in general. Even if it doesn't get them drunk, it is undeniable that elephants love eating the marula, and one legend explains why. Long ago, there was a terrible drought and famine that impacted all the animals in southern Africa. Though everyone had little, the hare showed kindness to the elephant and shared what he had. In return, the elephant gifted the hare with one of his precious tusks. The hare planted the tusk into the ground, and it grew into a beautiful tree that produced many delicious fruits, ensuring that these animals would not face a similar famine again. Since then, the elephant seeks out the tree that was once his trunk and devours hundreds of kilograms of its fruit. This is how some of the indigenous people say the marula spread such a vast distance across the continent of Africa. But I did say that elephants were the second most common method of seed dispersal, the primary method being the humans themselves. Between the years of 2000 BCE and 1500 CE, a massive human population shift occurred throughout much of Africa. Called the Bantu Migration, this time period involved agricultural peoples progressively moving from southern West Africa, east to the Horn of Africa, and then south to the Cape of Good Hope. As these peoples traveled, so too did their knowledge of ironsmithing, agricultural methods, social customs, languages, and food sources. 
Across much of the African continent south of the Saharan Desert, there are around 500 distinct African languages that can trace their lineage back to some form of Proto-Bantu. But one of the most important things the Bantu brought with them was the marula fruit. A species distribution map of Sclerocaria berea and a map of the Bantu migration highlights the same regions of Africa. But what's interesting is that there are three subspecies of Marula that are distinct in their geographical regions. Subspecies Berea stretches from West Africa to East Africa along a pretty level latitude just north of the equator. Subspecies Multifoliolata is concentrated in Eastern Africa around Kenya and Tanzania. And subspecies Caffra is primarily found in Southern Africa and Madagascar. For commercial purposes, there's only one subspecies of marula with products on the market, the Southern African Caffra marula. Considering the Bantu migration went from west to east to south, what I see is how cultivation improved the characteristics of the marula throughout the course of the migration, ultimately giving us the most desirable form of the tree by the time it reached the southern extent of the continent. But the tree is loved wherever it grows, and stories about it are as widespread as the tree itself. More often than not, these stories circle around themes of love and fertility, and there are a lot of connections drawn to the gendered nature of the tree, which is something you do see in other dioecious trees, but it's not as common as I would personally expect. One example is how the marula represents marriage. The idea of these trees needing two to tango is reflected in cultural values that place significance on the marital bond. Aside from held symbolism, there are a handful of examples of how this connection manifests in practical ways. Before a wedding, it is common for the two parties to undergo a cleansing ritual that involves boiling some marula bark in water and inhaling the steam it gives off. Another example has to do with marital spats. If a married couple finds themselves in a heated argument and can't seem to settle things, they are both tied to a marula tree until they get over whatever it is they are arguing about. Alongside the marriage symbolism is the tree's association with fertility. Lore has it that eating a marula fruit increases a woman's chances of becoming pregnant. I've read that if a woman is trying to get pregnant, she will greet her husband when he gets home with a fruit beer made with fermented marula, a practice that I think has more to do with the fermentation than it does with the marula, but, you know. One other connection between the marula and fertility is using the differences between male and female trees to help determine the sex of a prospective baby, with some practices involving brewing the inner bark of either tree into a concoction for an expecting parent to drink. Which, honestly, is a connection I've been expecting to see with humans and dioecious trees for so long and haven't until now. Maybe this does exist in other cultures with other dioecious tree species, but I'm really surprised this is the first time I'm reading it because it feels kind of obvious, especially because so many cultures have exact rituals pertaining to what kind of baby you're gonna get. There are guides today that tell you what to eat before conceiving, like how according to smartparents.sg, it's a Singapore-specific domain name, eating more acidic foods like leafy greens and blueberries results in a girl, and starchy foods like potatoes and bananas get you a boy. But, you may be wondering, what if the baby doesn't come out to be the sex that you had aimed for? Doesn't that immediately refute the practice? Well, 
According to some traditional African beliefs, that can happen simply because that's a very special baby who is so strong that they defy the wills of the spirits who have nothing better to do than dictate your biological makeup. As I've pointed out, much of this symbolism can be seen as being inspired by the unique aspects of the Marula's biology that have otherwise provided beneficial uses to humans. Let's start with something less expected, the tree's inner bark. Aside from the fertility applications, the inner bark is used extensively for a variety of medicinal purposes. Peeling away the outer bark of the tree reveals this bright red layer. That peely red material is removed and often ground into a powder before being infused in water to help assess and treat digestive issues. But what's more expected is how humans have extensively cultivated this tree to harvest its fruits and seeds for food. The thick-skinned yellow fruits can be eaten raw like many other fruits, but more often than not they are cooked and subsequently turned into jams and jellies. And as suggested by the fertility story, it is very common for the fruits to be fermented and made into a traditional fruit beer. This beer holds special significance when certain ceremonies are held. Which makes sense. If it's the kind of ceremony where everyone is supposed to have a good time, then nothing helps kickstart the party vibes like alcohol. And beer is but one form of alcohol the marula is used to make. In South Africa, the fruit is double distilled into an incredibly strong liquor that is essentially marula moonshine. Bottles of this stuff are wrapped in barbed wire, so anyone who wishes to consume it knows that they must do so with caution. For the milder adult beverage consumer, there is also a concoction known as amarula. This is fermented marula fruit that is blended with cream in a way reminiscent of Bailey's, though apparently much more decadent. Bottles of this are not wrapped in barbed wire, but do tend to feature an elephant, which I find rather appropriate. Most exciting about Amarula is that it is commonly sold in the United States. You won't be able to find it just anywhere, but I was able to track it down pretty easily at a nearby, albeit nicer, grocery store and get a bottle for myself. Definitely very cream-forward, with a slight fruitiness that I somehow wasn't expecting, despite the fact that it's literally made from a fruit. It was nice, but not my favorite thing in the world to have neat. What I did enjoy was a cocktail inspired by the White Russian called a Brown Elephant. One and a half ounces Amarula, one ounce Kahlua, top it off with milk. Now that was decadent. Check it out if it's legal for you where you live, and please drink responsibly. So then there's the seed, which is referred to as a nut and otherwise consumed like any nut. It's great for a snack on the go. And like other nuts, particularly the macadamia nut, the marula seeds are incredibly oily, and that oil is also made into a variety of products. A form of cooking oil can be made from it, as well as a moisturizer for your skin that helps prevent aging and reduces stretch marks. Interestingly enough, the marula nut oil is also rubbed onto raw meat to help preserve it. Kind of like how it helps preserve your skin. And of course, the marula is a tree, so one of the most accessible products it can produce is wood. Except, it doesn't. Meaning that this is a sacred tree, and in modern African cultures, it is frowned upon to cut it down. Don't get me wrong, there is very much a history of harvesting marula wood, but it was done by European countries with an imperial foothold in marula-growing regions during World War II to alleviate wood shortages elsewhere. 
But today, various African nations recognize the importance of the living marula tree and have invested in conserving it. When people harvest the fruit, they take only what has fallen from the tree rather than pulling it from branches. When they need wood, they typically harvest from other local species. And when they harvest the inner bark for medicine or for tradition, they only take what they need and make sure to leave enough for others to use and for the tree to survive. Many people rely on the African marula. Not only are the products a material resource for anyone living near them, but they also serve as economic boons for numerous rural communities. Of course, there's also cultural significance draped upon the boughs of this tree that enrich the lives of the diverse peoples of sub-Saharan Africa. And at the end of the day, the marula is a keystone savanna species. We cannot forget the role that each tree plays in its ecological community and the number of different non-human species that depend on them. One of my life's goals is to meet every tree I talk about on this show. Some are easier than others, but I still hope that one day I can sit in the shade of a marula tree in Africa and enjoy the tart taste of its fruit or the sweet nectar of its flowers. Until that day, I am content to settle for a glass of amarula and dream of being just another silly elephant. Do you hate waiting two whole weeks for more tree content? There's guaranteed weekly content available on my Patreon, including my Tree Walks video series, the occasional episode outtake, and updates about future projects that come with pictures of my cats, objectively the cutest non-tree organisms on this planet. And you can get all of that right now at no cost by starting a 7-day free trial, which you can cancel at any time. And should you decide to stick around, you'll get a shout-out from me in the next episode and help contribute to sustainable organizations like the Eden Reforestation Project. If I've made you curious, visit patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees to find out more. It's almost December, and that means winter is just about here for us in the North. Heck, I've got friends that already started getting snow a month ago. But now that most deciduous trees have finished shedding their leaves for the season, it's time to look to the evergreens to keep inspiring us with their persistent signs of life. So in two weeks, you can look forward to learning about an evergreen that's hard to pin to just a single name. Depending on where you live, you may know some local forest dwellers like the Northern White Cedar or the Western Red Cedar. They belong to a group of trees known as Arborvitae, and on December 12th, we'll talk about why these evergreens aren't actually cedars, and how they became the tree of life for so many first peoples of North America. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. Mm-hmm.